Library Podcast Studio at Stonehill College, I'm Jared Green, and this is Short Circuits, one author in the spotlight, generating electricity, shooting off sparks. In this episode, I'm joined by Fred Moten, poet, philosopher, author of numerous books of poetry and criticism, National Book Award finalist, Guggenheim Fellow, and Professor of Performance Studies at New York University. Fred, I want to thank you so much for joining me today, for being here on our campus, and for spending some time with me in the podcast studio. Uh, I want to start off by saying congratulations. I know that the new book, All That Beauty, has literally just come out, so this is a really auspicious time to see you. Congratulations on that. It is, uh, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, your 11th book. Does that sound about right? I guess so. (laughs) Um, It's... I, I don't know. I guess I tend to maybe compartmentalize a bit, but but it is probably right to call it the eleventh book because um, because in a way it's sort of in between um, you know verse and prose and criticism and poetry. So so it's it's yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that it, it kind of wraps up a, a project that I've been working on and thinking about for a long time. So, and 11 is a good lucky number. So. so it feels to you like this is something that comes uh, at a certain point in trajectory that you've yeah. been working on. And you say that it's in between. I would say so much of your work is really marked by that in-betweenness, that uh, resistance to division between poetry and philosophical essay. So I know this is principally a, a book of verse in a sense, uh, but I say it's the 11th book because in a way it's very hard to shelve these by clear category. Mm-hmm. I'm actually interested in the fact that you said that you tend to compartmentalize, though, as you think about your own work. Well, I part of it is just these sort of numerological ticks that I develop over the course of time. Mm-hmm. And so so there are five poetry books that that I've published before this one. And four books of criticism, but there's a fifth book of criticism, which in my mind I think of as the tenth book, but the eleventh book got done first. <laughs> so, so, so that's part of the problem. Is is I in my mind, you know, there still is a, a distinction that I make between the between the books that I would call criticism and the books that I would call poetry. And in a lot of ways, this, and it's not, I obviously they're, 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 those lines are, are blurry and, and there's elements of poetry in the criticism and elements of criticism in the poetry. But this book, All That Beauty, is a really intense and conscious effort to, to kind of refuse that distinction mm-hmm. in a way that the others weren't. They were kind of more happily invested in that distinction I would say Mm. okay so in some ways maybe they in an improvisational way were finding that their idiom could move back and forth between verse and criticism but this is a very deliberate attempt to to find space for both yeah yeah and in a way it's um yeah there was commerce between them in the other books And and I would say that rather than this book being in between, it's kind of not in between. It, yeah. it, 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 
there's some other kind of weird topological thing going mm-hmm. on. But but um, but you know, but it's. I mean, it still is recognizable, I suppose, and I look at it and I think, yeah, I, I think I know this person who wrote this, you know. So it doesn't feel totally unfamiliar or strange, but but it's definitely concerned with a, a kind of a, not a position, not a stance, but a, it's concerned with what it would mean to embrace and envelop something that already had refused that distinction that's the you know i mean it's like yeah there's a difference between saying okay well i'm going to refuse the distinction between these two things or i'm going to blur the lines between these two things and then it's another thing to say that's it never existed that the distinction never existed and what i want to do is embrace and inhabit the place where that distinction never happened right, in the that first liminal place. space yeah. Right, and liminality is such an important abiding interest of yours, I think, throughout the poetry, the criticism. Uh, there are so many of these sort of hinge concepts, the not-in-between uh, itself, which uh, I think that's something that you reference in Black and Blur that comes from C.L.R. James. It seems such an intriguing kind of positionality yeah. right, to stake out these Derridian hinge concepts. Right? And there are a lot of it in your in your own work, not just ones that you're engaging with uh, like traversals and uh, nomadism fugitivity and the rhizome but your own kind of constellation of idioms like uh, being in the break or blur the way in which you instrumentalize blur in a really unique way in in that text Uh, but also reserve this particular kind of multimodal term the not in between so it's it's both and it's neither nor it's it's what it needs to be at a given time, yeah, I, yeah. I suppose. Uh, but I want to come back to something you were just saying, that you know that person who wrote this book. Uh, I wonder if you feel that your work is less an expression of a known and constituted being uh, so much as it is a sort of becoming. Do you feel like when you are in the act of writing these, especially the more recent work, that you are in some way writing an aspect of self into being or playing with with self as well as expressing concepts that you've been working on well it probably it probably is that and there's probably no way for me you know by myself I suppose to avoid that in other words (laughs) that kind of self making or self-fashioning and self-projection and self-assertion is I don't know if it's I don't know if it's avoidable you know in within the in the way given the way we live now you know mm-hmm. given the way we've lived for the past half millennium you know but um I remember being fascinated by the great artist and philosopher Adrian Piper who at a certain moment decided wrote did a, a kind of performance in which she said she wanted to to give up or to relinquish self-consciousness and art consciousness mm-hmm. and self-consciousness about art consciousness <laughs> and and I've always thought that that's a good goal you know and so there's what I think that it probably is which is a pretty healthy amalgam of self-consciousness and art consciousness and self-consciousness about art consciousness. Uh, 
that I couldn't avoid. And then there's what I hope it is or what I wanted it to be. And I think over the course of the last few years, I, I have a better understanding of that. And the first thing that I would want it to be is that everything I've written basically the last, you know, 20 years has been a kind of elegy from my mom. Mm -hmm. So there's that aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And it's also been a kind of celebration, um, you know, of the community that I grew up in and that, I am, that I'm a part of, that I'm an emanation of. Um, those are the two things that I think that it's that it that I want it to be um and and to the extent that it is that it could be both of those things then what it would be finally I hope would be maybe like an expression not of self but of selflessness you know um but again that's that's my fantasy I don't I don't flatter myself that I've achieved that you know at all so I wonder if you wouldn't mind my asking to elaborate a little more on the the force of that influence when you say that you see an aspect of your writing as an elegy to your mother. Mm -hmm. The aspect of all of your writing over 20 years has something to do with engaging with that, I guess, with that process of um, capturing loss and letting go. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about the yeah. relationship to, to that memory, to, to that presence, to... To that influence? Well, I mean, it's, I've, part of it is just I've been able, been trying to understand it. I mean, I, my mom was a wonderful person and, um, and everything that I'm doing is a function of, of her influence. So there's just not a single thing really, you know, and some of them are bad, you know, but there's not a single thing that in my mind, it can't be traced back to her and mostly, and in, 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 and for whether it's for the good or the bad, I'm just eternally and, and grateful and feel absolutely lucky to have been um, born to her. That was just uh, her. Her name is Bertia Bernice Jenkins, and everybody called her B. And she was a tremendously lovable person, and funny, and interesting, and committed socially, and everything. So. And at the same time, what I've come to understand as a function of the stuff I study, you know, is that my mom wasn't just this individual person named B. Jenkins. It, there's my grandfather, her father, my grandmother, who we were all very, very close. But also there's a great, you know, Angela Davis wrote a, a, an amazing book of essays. I guess it was published in the maybe early 80s called Women, Race, and Class. And she begins to investigate, you know, the structure of motherhood in, in black communities. And, and one of the things that she talks about is this phenomenon of what, what sometimes people call the play mama, where you have what it really boils down to is this kind of, that, that, that is as however much one might be attached to the individual figure of one's mother, One's mother is also one's mother's friends, the, mm -hmm. the people who keep you. My mom had a, our next door neighbor was Miss Cora Jackson. And I, when I would get home from school when I was little, I would go stay with Miss Jackson until my mom came home. And she always had cookies for me. And she's also part of what I would call my mother. 
my mother's best friend, Eloise Bush, you know, my, but in a different and in a totally more complex way, in a more remote way, Angela Davis, who my mom sent me to when I was seven years old, when Angela Davis came to speak at UNLV and had me get an autograph of If They Come in the Morning, which I still have, you know, so, so that the, what, what, there's this tremendous intensity around the individual figure of the mother, but really what's at stake is what um, a, an actual former student of mine um, who wrote a great book called Scandalize My Name, named Tarion Williamson. She teaches at University of Minnesota. It's what she calls the maternal ecology. Um, or, so what we're talking about is not so much the mother, but but a kind of matrix, you know, um, this maternal field within which you, and so it, it includes my mom's friends, Gwen Weeks and Alice Key, who I would go to their house and watch football and they taught me how to listen to jazz, you know? Right, the, right. So it's, that's all of that, you know, it's, it's a, there's both this intensity of this particular person, but then there's also the recognition that that person is a composite and that that person is more than just them. And, which means that even when you lose them, the relationship endures and it deepens and it transforms. And um, so, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, I, I feel like there's very much that that quality of swerve, connection, and further brachiation in in your work. There'll, there'll be a germinal concept, and that might be where the initial energy is. But I find that as you carve a path toward a thought, we have to go somewhere else to get to that thought. We have to go to another interlocutor, and that might be Deleuze and Guattari, or it might be C.L.R. James, or it might be Cecil Taylor, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I, it, it's, it's really intriguing to me that that is so much like this kind of socio-maternal uh, relationship, that composite that you're mm -hmm. talking about. Um, it really feels like there's a great deal of resonance between how those movements happen in, in your work. I wonder, at, at this point, if you've seen significant changes in your readership to the extent that you are in contact at a reading or at a, an event, like, if you see uh, different people connecting mm -hmm. with your work and uh, different ways in which they are connecting to it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a professor, you know, so most of my writing operates within a, academic context and I don't know man I mean you know it's a few people it's 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 we don't we don't write bestsellers you know we write small we write books for small for, for small audiences who are interested in very you know in particular things um and to the extent that I started writing books of poetry again it was even that might be even be smaller you know and the to the extent that I was part of any kind of wing in the, of the poetry world or movement, it would be more towards the maybe the more experimental side of things. So it's an even smaller, and it's a small self-selecting group. It's the people who also do that, That's right. or the you know, and and within the context of that experimental poetry world, there's an even more small nugget of black experimental poets, and I was. That was the group that that's that's who I always wanted to be with and were, felt that I was writing for, and I still feel that way. It's not that I, 
you know, and and similarly, you know, there's a a a, a group of you know extraordinary scholars in in black studies, and and I felt I always wanted to be writing with them and for them and be in that general in that project that we shared together. Now I know that there are. I won't say lots of people, but there are many, you know, some people who are not within those small groups who do read my work, and I'm happy for that. You know, I, I, it's that kind of weird, cool thing where, at the very same time that it's for a very particular group of people, I always wanted to write stuff that anybody could read and that anybody could have, and then at the same time, the only way I could figure. That I could write something both for this small select group of folks, and at the same time also something that anybody could read, is if I wrote it as if no one was ever going to read it, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Which is to yeah. say, without an already preconceived notion of what I was supposed to adhere to or what I was supposed to, what rules I was supposed to follow, I I, I tried to write as if no one was going to read it, you know. Right. Um, so. So on the one hand, no one, and on the other hand, a small group of people, and on the third hand, everybody. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. So. Well, it really feels like it's work that can touch everybody. There may be aspects to the field of reference that are more difficult to access for people outside of academia, but there's such an urgency to the themes that you've been working on, that you, that you certainly have been working on through the, the trilogy, um, Consent Not to Be a Single Being. It feels like everybody needs to engage with, especially in a moment where identity seems to be, on the one hand, becoming so much more entrenched and calcified, and at the same time under assault. That these really these concepts that seem so liberatory in your work and have so much joy in them, as much as a kind of fury of criticism, there is a great deal of capacious love and joy in the work that you're doing, and it feels like that's that is very much what's needed.、Um, I wish this were. If there were any justice, <laughs> right? This would be what everyone's reading on the plane and on the beach, right? And it may not be for that moment, but、uh, the, these are ideas that that need to work their way through our culture in、uh, in a very different way. Well, I I appreciate you saying that. That, that would be hard justice. I don't know. You wouldn't be a very popular <laughs> judge, but but I but I also know. You know, I'm I write. The way the work I do is very much the work of a reader,、right. okay, so which makes me think, and I'm happy for this to be true. It doesn't bother me like a single bit that I don't feel that there's anything original or new in what I'm doing. It's maybe maybe it's put together in a in some, in an idiosyncratic way, but but it's already there in other places. It's there in 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 Great works of literature that lots of people know about, and it's there in great works of literature that are more obscure. But it's also there in 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 the kinds of, in the modes of social life that I know and grew up around and grew up in. And so, so it's I'm trying to. It's like that. It's kind of almost like the opposite of the Emperor's New Clothes, you know, where I'm not pointing out the absence of something. I feel like I want to. I'm trying to point out the ubiquity of something. That,、yeah. that there's this beautiful thing that's everywhere, and then at the same time, it's in danger everywhere that it is. And 
And some of that danger is a function of neglect and not being noticed. Um, and some of that danger is a function of really brutal forms of surveillance in which it's being carefully, violently watched. You know, it's a, it's a, but, you know, I mean, I, I just, I, I, yeah, I, I, I feel like, yeah, it's just, there's, I just have been lucky person and I've been exposed to a lot of great, beautiful things, you know, and, and, um, and I've also had to come to grips with the history of the, of the brutalization and endangerment of those things. And that's part of the story. Right. And that's part of what has to be told and understood as well. So, but at the end of the day, mostly I feel lucky, you know, and, um, I, yeah, I had, I had the, the horrible misfortune of having a happy childhood and a whole lot of the way that people write and think now you know, emerges from another kind of experience. And, and that experience obviously is real. It has to be validated. It has to be related. But I'm coming from that other place, you know. So, and the older I get, the more I feel like I'm back there, you know. Mm-hmm. Some days I wake up and I swear it's 1973. You know, so. <laughs> I'd like to talk a little bit more about that surveillance that you were talking about mm-hmm. and the the implicit and explicit violence of, of that gaze, of that surveillance. I'm especially fascinated by, by the trilogy, by Consent Not to Be a Single Being, and just the way in which that attempts to refigure what, what we mean by subjectivity, right? To think about it as something other than these Western foundational concepts of coherent subjectivity. And like this as an overarching concept that works its way through three books that are in many ways very different that are thinking about music and visual art and um, resistive politics, um, performance in, in a lot of different kind of modes, but that have that, I guess, coursing through them. Well, that idea that you derive from uh, Edouard Glissant to, to not consent or to consent not to be uh, a single being. And I see that there's a lot of that same kind of impulse that we find in, say, Judith Butler to to imagine the possibility of being a, a bad subject, mm-hmm. right? Of being disobedient uh, in the most positive kind of way. I don't know if identity is available mm. in the in the wake of that consent. You know, one way to think about it is that the the kind of coherent subject that you spoke of is that's an idea that begins to emerge, you know, and it's roughly coterminous with what we call the modern age, um, you know, the transition from, say, the medieval period to the Renaissance. It happens to correspond with the so-called age of discovery. It happens to correspond with the age of the emergence of colonialism and settler colonialism. It happens to correspond with the introduction of the transatlantic slave trade. All the And these are, these things that happen to coincide are they're not just happenstance. They're part of a package. Okay. And over the course of time, you know, maybe by the time we get to the mid-19th century, the, the person who is uh, a great French ph- philosopher, Louis Althusser, calls the three great fatherless children of our modernity, Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud, all, you know, from their different perspectives and within the context of a set of social upheavals which led them to the to this understanding really 
decided that they just needed to pierce the myth of this coherent subject to say that, A, it, it never was and was never going to be, um, and to try to understand what it is that we have, you know, in, 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 in lieu of that coherent subject. And so a whole lot of really powerful intellectual work has been done since then, you know, by whoever, you know, Deleuze or Derrida or Judith Butler, people you mentioned, to in, in, in continuing to, to excavate that, that, that dig that, that those guys made. But, you know, the work that I do, it takes into account all of those folks and, and it studies those folks as much as I possibly can and as much as I am, am capable of. But, but, but the work that I do is primarily, you know, a function of or an emanation of what the great political scientist Cedric Robinson called the black radical tradition. And what maybe is unique in the black radical tradition, or at least I don't want to say it's unique to it or exclusive to it, but one of the fundamental features of that tradition is that black experience was such that there was no access even to the fantasy of the coherent subject that the condition of the enslaved was one in which you did not even have access to that dream. Okay. And it turns out that this manifested itself in lived experience as any number of modalities of great brutality and deprivation to be denied the possibility of full individuation was, um, was nothing less than a kind of genocidal torture at the same time, what we also experienced was the other side of that genocidal torture, which was the imposition of individuation, right? The imposition of individuation as a dream, as a fantasy, as a requirement, at the same time that we were never allowed to fully enter into the, spell, the realm or the space of individuation. And it turns out that we figured out some kind of way to preserve and to continue to circulate amongst ourselves, so to speak, the gift that accrues to non-individuation. And that's what I've been trying to understand. And sometimes we think about it, my wife writes about it, and she she calls it the aesthetic sociality of blackness. And Sometimes I've thought about it under the rubric of ensemble and, you know, um, Saidiya Hartman in her really great, important new work thinks about it in terms of wayward lives, beautiful experiments. She talks about it under the rubric of the chorus. And I don't know if identity um, <clears throat> accrues in that social in that social space of where we would which we would define by as the, the space that is marked, demarc- demarcated by the refusal of individuation, which is to say, not only that was individuation refused to us, but we refused the individuation that was refused to us. And that's what I study. That's what I'm interested in. And um, it's the study of life, of black social life, it's not so much the study of individual black lives. And, um, and in this respect, it kind of goes back to what I was saying about the elegy. 
that that I that over the course of time I've recognized that this thing that in my mind on one level is an elegy for my mom is really a celebration of this maternal ecology of which we both were emanations, you know, and um, and it's ultimately that that we that 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 we have to give. That's what is offered to us, and that is also what we offer, and. Um, and to my mind, at least, the world, you know, which is burning and drowning at the same time, um, you know, needs some of that. Um, and, and it is our imperative to, to share it. And that sharing, more than anything, is what I'm interested in under the rubric of consent. Um, it's not an individual act. It's not an individual decision. It's not... Um, consent in that sort of normative legal sense it is um i mean sometimes i think about it literally you know but just by breaking up the word you know that that etymologically you know that 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 latin complex around the notion of con or con you know that that withness of it but the scent is also in part being sent what it means to be what it means to have been sent um what it means to have been affected um, to have been moved in in ways that another great contemporary thinker, to me the greatest of all, Denise Ferreira da Silva, um, she talks about this, what it means to be affectable, that it is, and it is, and she's operating again in her own way in the wake of, you know, the person who is kind of all, all of our mother, you know, so to speak, Hortense Spillers, who talks about this in terms of the, the, the beauty, but also the terror of being touched, right. of being handled, of being handed. And this is, you know, this is, this is what we have. This is what we have to give. You know, this is what we have to share. Um, and, and the history of it is terrible, but the history of it is also beautiful. Right. You know? And I don't know, is it, is it horrifying if I read a piece of your poetry to you? To you? No. It, it might well be, but I'm, I was just thinking about uh, something from uh, The Service Porch. This is uh, from What Not to the Music. Repetition without pulse, when the pulse is new in every instance, still be pulse. They'd be drinking and what not to the music. I had to wait until the picking was good, the smoke and everything. It's not a concertized thing. Can there be anything like a concertized thing? I'd be drinking and what not to the music. I'd be drinking and what not to the music. What not to the music. What's not to the music? And it, it just makes me want to uh, ask you to, I don't know, explore to think about a little bit the place of experimental musicality in, in your work, in, your, in, in what you take pleasure in, but also in what you're sitting down uh, on the page. Well, that's an interesting passage I mean to to think about because it came out of a a kind of really cool collaboration with this really interesting great young artist named Kevin Beasley um, and we had a kind of symposium uh, in which we were talking together and he was he's a he's a, a visual artist and a sculptor but also a sound artist a DJ and he he created a kind of sound mix that included him reading excerpts from a memoir of a jazz musician who I, I wish I could I want to say it was Youssef Latif but I'm not sure but the musician was 
actually saying with some consternation that at their concerts, people would be drinking and whatnot to the music. He didn't like that. And it connected up for me to some things I've been kind of semi-obsessed with for a long time. There's a great, great album by Charles Mingus called Charles Mingus Presents Charles Mingus. And it's just kind of, it's, it's, it's a dilemma in a way. So Mingus wanted to simulate the feeling of performing live in front of an audience in the studio, even though there was no audience. But he was often very annoyed by his audiences, particularly at jazz clubs who were not paying attention properly, who were tinkling their glasses and drinking their drinks and not giving the music the kind of focused attention that he imagined that they might give at a, you know, at Carnegie Hall or at Lincoln Center or something like that. But, the, but of course, he also understood that there was a kind of energy that infused the music, that helped to make the music that could only be gotten in those live venues. So how do you extract the noise, the annoyance, and at the same time maintain this creative energy? And, of course, you can't, right? Um, and what it lets you... Okay, so... This is going to be a long way. So, a detour. There's this guy named Bill Simmons. He's like a really interesting um, writer about basketball, mostly. He's kind of, you know, I guess he grew up around here, sort of, you know, obsessive-compulsive Celtic fan, but really into the game. And he wrote a really interesting book. I think it's just called The Book of Basketball, this big, thick book. And I was reading it one day. If you remember in the 80s, there was this kind of, you know, um, what, what should we call it? A sort of dynastic turns. There was, you know, the Laker-Celtic rivalry that the Sixers were sort of in for a bit. And then eventually the Pistons eclipsed. And then eventually Jordan and the Bulls eclipsed the Pistons. But it, it, would, it seemed as if it would take three or four tries for the new team to finally kill off the old king. And this certainly happened with the Pistons. They they could never get past the Celtics. Then they had one. Then they finally got past the Celtics, but they couldn't get past the Lakers. And there was this one interview with like this totally distraught Isaiah Thomas, who says, "It's like Bird and Magic have some secret knowledge about basketball that they won't let us know." I remember that. I remember him saying that, and Simmons remembered him saying it too. So Simmons sees him at a hotel pool in Las Vegas and says, Will you, what was the secret knowledge? Did you ever find out? And he says, Isaiah looked at him, you know, it's like some Zen moment, you know. <laughs> Finally, Isaiah, after a whole bunch of negotiation, Isaiah, and Isaiah tells him the secret. And the secret is, it's not about basketball. That's the secret about the music, it seems to me, which is to say, and it's more specific, the music is beautiful. It's just beautiful. I, I can't, I don't think I could live without it. I know like my mom couldn't live without it. I can't live without it. But it's really not about the music. It's about the making of the music. Okay. Um, and the making of the music is all that social noise, all that tinkling of ice in the glass, all of that. It's all of it. And um, so... 
musicians are artists and they think about things like artists and they want the kind of attention that artists deserve, think that they deserve to have. And so you could imagine why the musician would say, I don't want these people drinking and whatnot to the music. And I'm like, no, we be drinking and whatnot to the music. And that's part of what makes it so that what's not to the music. It, the music is the making of the music and the music is everything. As, as Cecil Taylor said, music is anything as long as it's organized according to certain principles. And, uh, which is to say, to get back to the performance part of it, yeah, I'm interested in black performance. And I think that but I think I've come to understand that the reason that I was so invested and have been so obsessed with black performance for so long is because what I was trying to get to eventually was some kind of an understanding or some kind of an awareness of what one might call black non-performance, right? Which is what surrounds the performance, what surrounds the artifact, what, what both surrounds it, what what that out of which the artifact emerges and it's finally at the end of the day it's that back to which back to which the artifact will go um and it's that social surround or it's a socio-ecological surround that's 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 what we're trying to get to and what we're trying to save at, at a moment when it's when it's in grave danger you know Thank you once again, Fred, for spending this time, for exploring your ideas with me. Thank you for the music of your work and for the new work to come. Thank you, too. My pleasure, Jerry.